We'll hear argument next in Lawrence versus Florida. Ms. Bonner. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Mr. Lawrence, in this case, made an application for relief in the state courts of Florida. That, unfortunately, was denied to him the relief that he sought. Consequently, he came here to the United States Supreme Court on a certiorari review. And the uh, certiorari, although it was denied, he did present to this Court an issue on which it could have acted had it chosen to act. It is well within the power under 28 U.S.C. 2104 for this Court to modify, vacate, remand. In other words, this Court can and could have affected that judgment. Our position is that this, this, there is a distinction between the, quote, appellate jurisdiction under 2104 and the original writ of certiorari, which would lie in this Court in some instances. When one uses the appeal, one is not making a new application. We respectfully suggest that the utilization of the emphasis in 2244 should be on application. And what was before this Court on petition for certiorari was the application, the document, the issues, which had been presented below in the Florida courts, and this Court was sitting to determine whether it would. It would presumably, though, be limited in some ways. For example, if, if the application for state post-conviction relief raised arguments under state law, those would not be a proper subject of a petition for certiorari. Absolutely not, Your Honor. And the issues which were raised were the same raised ones that were raised in the state court. It were of constitutional dimension that, that Mr. Uh, Lawrence raised here. But our point is, if the emphasis is on the application, then until the finality of action on the application. You're saying the application is the application for a petition for certiorari is the application? No, sir. I'm saying the application for 3850 in Florida State trial courts, which then goes to the Florida State Supreme Court, is the application upon which this court would be acting. If it were not acting on that, what would it be acting on? Well, we, we can't act on it un, un, unless, unless it's final. We, we, we need final action by the state court, don't we? Well, except— How can it be final action and yet still be pending? To utilize the word final there would be—we could use the word final after a jury determination, and that in one effect, in one sense, is final— and when Florida is done, it's final in some sense, but it's not final under 2104 because this court can modify it, can well, remand it. It's, it's a final, it's final as far as the application for state review is concerned. There, it, it is the Which is the text that we're dealing with. Here. Yes, it is the application for state review which comes before this court. We're asking you to review the lower court's rulings on the application. I take it you're talking about language, if I followed it, in 2244-D2. Yes, sir. And it tolls the statute while the A properly filed application for state post-conviction or other collateral review 
is pending. So the question is, during the 90 days after they said no to you in the State Court and you have a chance to file the writ, is that application pending? And you say, yes, that application is pending. That application is pending and subject to various motions, such as a motion or a uh, petition for certiorari. Yes, sir. But it is pending. Yes, sir. That is uh, that's ex- where we are in this argument. That is exactly our position, okay. that this application is pending. No, it does of course, not the other way to read the language is that the state application is final, otherwise you couldn't file the federal petition for certiorari, and that petition may affect what happens with your application for state relief, but the state application itself is final and over. Well, in that sense, it is not final in that it can be altered and that this Court can order. What well, has to be final before you can file a petition for cert? Yes, sir. The, it's, it's the vagaries of the, of the use of the language in the context. Well, it doesn't say it say that. I would have thought it said that there has to be a final judgment of, the, exactly. of the lower court, and the final judgment of the state court concerns that application, which is still pending and will continue to be pending, at least for 90 days, in yes. your view. So it doesn't require a final state application. It requires a final judgment about the state application. Yes, that's exactly true, sir. So yeah. w- what about the argument um, uh, raised by your friend that exhaustion doesn't require uh, filing a petition for certiorari, that the state procedures are considered fully exhausted upon the final decision in the state court, and that it makes sense to treat this, this uh, 2244 in a parallel way with respect to the exhaustion requirement? Well, Your Honor, uh, first of all, it would require this Court to substitute the word exhaustion for the word pending or in, in the statute. There is no reason to believe, and there is much reason not to believe, that Congress intended exhaustion as a concept which should be read into this particular context in which we're dealing. In point of fact, in the 1995 uh, proposal for habeas reform, the word exhaustion was in there. It was taken out in 1996. Unfortunately, the, the congressional history and the speeches on the floor, et cetera, are not really illuminating except uh, the concept of exhaustion apparently the Legislative Congress felt would be subject to interpretation differently in different states. How do you when read, you read uh, is pending with respect to uh, when the uh, state defendant movement doesn't file a petition for certiorari? Well, is, I that, is, that, is the state post-conviction application still pending on the 90th day? I believe it is, Your Honor, and I think the logic that this Court has used in the context of 2255s obtains as well. In it, it is pending because the reason that we have 90 days is an unusual amount of time that we have to come to ask this Court for relief. And I believe that part of that time and part of the reason for the existence of that is that we can contemplate whether we should be filing a petition for certiorari. Well, anybody who wants the additional time, this law was passed to prevent people from uh, delaying. But anybody who wanted to delay would then have to file a cert petition, I assume. I would suggest to you, Your Honor, that it should be 
this should be construed the same way that the finality of a state conviction, the finality of a federal conviction, and the finality of a 2255 are determined, and that is at the time that either this Court has dealt with certiorari by denying or granting it, or the 90 days has has been um, but if you if you file that so you say you get 90 days whether you file or not yes I if do. you want the additional time that it takes for an opposition for a waiver of response for this court to dispose of it then you have to file the petition for cert i don't i that is not my position your honor i believe that the 90 days should obtain no matter what so that we'll have a universal rule right. that practitioners will not be making this error because they will be acting in concert but the, but the chief's point is if a petition is in fact filed, it will end up being more than 90 days because then you would have, in addition to the 90 days you have to file the cert petition, the time it takes for this court to dispose of the petition. And the statute of limitations would be told throughout that entire period, not just a fixed 90 days. That is, that is true, ma'am. Do you, it, do you, does your argument mean that a defendant who wanted to file within the 90 days, wanted to file in the district court, wanted to file the habeas application in the district court within the 90 days, couldn't do so because it would be premature, because the, um, the state application is still pending? I believe that the way that we've been seeing the opinions come from this court and from the various courts around the country are that there seems to be a favorable disposition to protective 2254-2255 petitions. I agree with the premise of, of Your Honor's question that it would be pending, and it would be pending here, and therefore you should not go to district court and file a 2254. Now, whether you can and you can do it in a protective fashion is is another entire issue, which isn't really raised here because he did seek certiorari review. Do you read the, the tolling provision in 2263B the same way as you read the tolling provision that's before us? No, certainly I do not. And the state uh, really did not analogize to 2263, as I believe perhaps they should have analogized to it. Uh, 2263, of course, is the opt-in provision, which moves things along on an even quicker track than the one year. And you have 180 days to file, and the Congress was absolutely clear, and this was enacted at the same time that the provisions at issue were enacted, that it was 180 days after final state court affirmance, and you had to you had to file. That's it. And so you think Congress really wanted to have two different, entirely different tolling concepts in these provisions? I think they did, and one of the reasons that I believe that they did, number one, was to achieve their goal of, of moving things faster if the states were able to guarantee counsel. And the second is that they told as well in 2263B, the, the, the main difference between 2263A and B1 is that the time when you're getting your certiorari petition ready for this court under the opt-in provision is not told. 
But the time when this Court is considering the uh, uh, post-conviction um, certiorari request is told. It's told clearly by statute. I cannot presume and would not presume that what Congress did was write these in numerical order and when it got to 2263 come up with a new and exciting idea and then not go back to 2254 and 2244 to change the language there. I think Congress meant something different. And what it meant was the trigger time, the time that was going to be elapsing between the petition uh, between your final decision and when you could go to certiorari. You know, what about uh, 2244-D1A, um, where Congress referred expressly to the time for seeking direct review or the expiration of the time for seeking such review? We, your, your reading of D2 is that that's what they meant when they said the state application was pending. The state application or the time for seeking review of the state application, and in just since just a few sections above that, they expressly said that. Shouldn't we read pending in a, a different uh, different direction? Well, the, the distinction I have at least two things to say about that. The distinction between the two sections that would be D1A and D2. One is dealing with one thing: a judgment which has reached finality, and it is determining when that judgment is final. They would have had to rewrite the tolling provision, because it is not speaking about a judgment. It is speaking about an application, which is a process. And the second thing is that — They would have just said during the time of the application for state post-conviction or the the expiration of the time for seeking review of it. I believe that Congress is presumed to have read and written its laws — knowing the history of interpretation of this court. And pending has a very long um, tradition. And this court's role in the the state-federal continuum, obviously, is a well-defined 200-plus-year-old role. And the part of that role is that you, as this court, are the final arbiters and the only true people who can make the decision about what the federal constitution says. The state would have you read this as if it says application for state post-conviction relief is pending in the state court. I would be hesitant to rewrite the statute since Congress did not invite me to do so as the state has actually done by saying pending in the um, in the state And that is not the concept that we've lived with for 200 years or 200-plus years. Um, Pending means until it is, cannot be any longer acted upon. And it is clear here, you, as this Court, can act upon it. Do you think the the, the judgment in the criminal case is still pending because it can be acted upon? Not the judgment in the criminal case, but I would suggest that the judgment in the 22, I mean, the uh, 3851 procedures in Florida, which would be that post-conviction application, because that's where we are. We've reached finality on the, um, after this court has had, after we've either come to this court for, for certiorari or the 90 days is exhausted. Are you saying, are you arguing that 
there, during this period, there is uh, an application for state relief pending in the state courts or that there's an application for state relief pending in this court? I am saying that the application in state court is yet pending when it is here because that court can be ordered by this court to act upon it. Where is it pending? It is pending still in state court because this court can order that court. I thought your your argument on brief was that it is pending here, and the statute says pending. It doesn't say pending as the statute you compared it with says that pending, the application is pending someplace. Where is it pending? Not in the state court anymore. They've reached their final judgment, but it's still pending in your case here because you filed a petition for cert. Yes, ma'am. It just is also, I have, there is um, some case law which speaks to the fact that it remains pending or unsettled or unsure or unfinal when a court can order another court to act on it. In the same sense that it is, it is pending after the trial court has acted, but before the defendant or the petitioner decides whether he wants a state appeal. Yes. I don't know whether we're, where it's pending, whether it's still pending in the state trial court or in the state appeals court, but nobody denies that it's pending. And I understood your argument to be whatever pending means there, pending means here, because yes. there's no modifier that would, would, would limit uh, the same, that same is, construction. That is so, sir. Well, in what sense is it an application for state post-conviction review when it's pending before us? We're considering a claim that the state erroneously decided a federal question. You are but it's not an applica- it's an application for our review, not state post-conviction review. It began as a complaint. This is, uh, analytically, everyone seems to have a little bit of, of pause because of exactly the context of your, of your comment, of your question. But there is only one lawsuit, complaint, whatever you wish to call it, which we're dealing with, and that is the one that seeks post-conviction relief in Florida. If you're unsuccessful there, you go to the Florida Supreme Court. And that same application is what we come to this court on. There is nothing else out there. The state seems to tell us or suggest to us that it's some kind of an independent state action, uh, federal action. It's, an, but it's, it's, an, it's a federal writ, isn't it? It's an application for a federal writ. It's not an appeal in but it comes under this court's state case. It comes under this court's appellate jurisdiction versus its original jurisdiction for writs of certiorari. Um, if you succeed, you're going to get an order from this court to the state court say, saying, go back in this state proceeding that has been begun and do it right. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the focus of it is, is still the state proceeding, even though we may correct it under appellate jurisdiction. Yes, sir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The state um, brings forward an argument that this certiorari before this court is not a part of, not an integral part of, and in fact not any part of the state process. I believe they come to that conclusion because they insert what they wish the statute said rather than what the statute actually says. 
and we're attempting, as best we can, to interpret what Congress did, not um, not what you wish it did. Any, um, I suppose this, we ought to know better, but how long the average disposition time is for a petition for certiorari in a case like this? I believe it's like 44 days if you don't. From the, no, from the time of, of I suppose the, the pertinent question would be from the time of final state, final state judgment, uh, eventual filing for petition for cert, opposition, waiver, our disposition. Presumably it's probably five or six months. I, it's not usually that long. This Court's very efficient with that. And that's one of the Well, if you take, let's just say, if you take 90 days and, and you get 44 two, or a two-month so. extension, yes. uh, uh, then you get another month for the opposition, mm-hmm. depending on what circuit you're from for the extension. Uh, get another month for the opposition, at least two months, a month and a half for us uh, to dispose of it. It probably comes out to about six months. It could. I, I get, uh, my question is, in a law that imposed a one-year statute of limitation, um, is this an implicit additional — I realize it's question-begging to some extent, but an, implicitly an additional six-month period uh, would strike me as odd. Well, Your Honor, uh, it is not a one-year statute of limitations per se. That may be what looks good on paper with the, the, the writing of the statute and the expressing of the statute to the public that one year is what's going to happen. But when one takes into account the exhaustion requirement and takes that time out, we're still not talking about a 365-day Process. Let me ask you on that score. What typically in Florida is the time elapsed between the conclusion of the criminal proceeding and the conclusion of the state collateral relief? It's quite a while, Your Honor. I wouldn't it's more know than the six average. months, I assume. It's a long time, Your Honor. And two, three, four, five years. Yes, sir. And all that time, the one-year statute has been told. Exactly. So it, that's why I don't the look at it. Question is, with exactly. there's maybe another six months added onto that five or six-year period. Yes, sir. And, and one of the important things well, here I mean, is the reason that's told is because it is designed to encourage the exhaustion of the state procedures. This additional period is when it's pending not before the state but before a federal court. But it's the state petition which is pending for your review. And one of the things I want to point out is that the 90 days, when they passed habeas reform, they were not speaking about 30 days, 20 days, 60 days, 90 days, or even the six months that Your Honor posit. It was 10 years, 12 years, 14 years. And that was, I think, the, the major impetus to, to encourage this, the Congress to put the 365-day on there. Um, this Court has complete control over the certiorari process. You know, being lawyers, we always do file at the last minute, but of course, it's this Court's rules which give us the 90 days versus another period of time. It is the petition for certiorari is not like a notice of appeal because it's not just a one-page document that's laid out in the federal statutes for us to do. It's an application to it's an application for review, and it is it takes any, some time to fashion. Any statistics on how many petitions for cert from state post-conviction collateral review are, are granted? In other words, if we're talking about an additional six months in every case, uh, how, how many of those are actually granted? I don't know how many are granted, Your Honor, but one thing that struck me as I was reading through these cases is that many are granted to the state. And, of course, when the state 
goes to certiorari from post-conviction, from a post-conviction loss on its side, then the whole process is turned on its head. And many, many times this court has granted certiorari um, to the state. And that is another problem that happens with this tolling if you read pending the way the state wants you to read pending. Because what do we do then? What do people do? Well, but if the state is petitioning for cert, it means you've won. It means you've you're not, won. Presumably you're not looking forward to further. No, but what happens to the time? How do you count that time if yes, you I lose suppose, here? I suppose you'd have to file a, protect, a protective petition with the district court saying we won, but we might still lose. I guess. And, um, you know, a protective to litigants, protective, and to district court judges, I believe, and, and state court judges, protective petitions are kind of anathema because since you don't know what you're going to raise, and in the 2254 you have more of an idea, certainly, because you're, you're limited in many instances, if not all instances, to those things which were exhausted. But obviously there are new claims that are brought up because there would not be a stay in a bay. There would not even be a request for a stay in a bay if there were not things that the federal Presumably courts then you'd make the same arguments you make on questions two and three about the availability of equitable tolling. I'm sorry. I, I Presumably, I, mean, you, you, I, I would be very surprised if a court found that you were out of time because the state had filed a petition for certiorari. I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised too, but I've practiced a long time and I've seen some very odd things happen in courts. And this, both the stay and obey and the other procedures that have been discussed by this court have not been handed down as mandates to the lower court to require the lower court to rule in a certain way or to absolutely stay or to entertain um, protective motions and then permit those protective motions to be um, supplemented at a time later. If Your Honor, do not mind, I will reserve some time. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Mr. Keis. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Petitioner's case amounts to no more than a disagreement with EDPA's recognized policies and procedures and an improper attempt to convert ignorance of settled law into an extraordinary circumstance warranting equitable relief. EDPA's plain language and recognized purposes establish that tolling does not extend to the post-conviction certiorari process. Additionally, ignorance of settled law, whether by an incarcerated pro se petitioner, by private counsel, or by appointed counsel, is not an extraordinary circumstance and does not excuse prompt filing. Mr. Keis, can I ask you what your view is on what happens if the Court grants certiorari? Would the application be pending during the period that the case is under advisement in this Court? No, Your Honor. Uh, and I, I'm assuming your question is asking me grant certiorari based on, a, on an application filed by the petitioner. Either way. Well, in both cir- circumstances, the answer would be no. Uh, and, and in both circumstances, I think the relief that we're Then let me ask the second question. Supposing we reversed the State Court and sent it back for further proceedings in the State Trial Court, would you say the case that is still not, not pending for during the further proceedings? It, it may be pending in State Court during the further proceedings, but it's not pending during the time that it is at this Court, because this Court So it started pending again after an interruption. Is that the way it would be? Based on equitable principles, I think that would be the interpretation. No, yes. forget equitable principles, statutory principles. Is there a pending — can it be a, a, a lack of a con- continuity in it? You could have a pending for a period 
through a couple of years, then an interruption, and then it can, could, could resume pending after the interruption. You're using the phraseology interruption, and I would I — would Well, a period when it's not pending, followed by a period when it again begins to pend. In that unusual circumstance, Your Honor, I think principles of equitable tolling would apply to keep the petitioner's ability to but there file. would be no statutory right, in your view. It would depend on the equitable considerations. I believe that's correct, Your Honor, because statutory pending contemplates a finality. It contemplates — and, and I think as this — and this is one of the fundamental problems, uh, I believe, with, with petitioner's construction, is this, this ignoring of not only the plain language of the statute, but what this Court has said about this statute, about 2244-D2. In Duncan, this Court said that state, the word state modifies both post-conviction and other collateral review and, and established that we're talking about a state application. But it doesn't say state pending or pending in state court. And I, what, I, what I want to do is, is go back and ask a, a question somewhat along the lines that Justice Stevens uh, asked. Uh, is the application pending in the period uh, between uh, the disposition of the petition by the state trial court and the determination by the petitioner whether or not to go for, for state appellate relief? Yes, Your Honor. I, I okay. believe it is, and I believe then, that's what this Court said by the, by the same token, why isn't it pending between the uh, the, the, the final disposition by the State Appellate Court and, and the determination to, to seek cert here? Well, I have two answers to that, Your Honor. First would be that's inconsistent with the language utilized by this Court in Kerry, where the Court defined pending as until final resolution through the State's post-conviction. That was the issue in the yeah. that case. This issue wasn't in that case. Correct, Your Honor, but the language utilized nevertheless obtained. I can't, when you write something, I don't think I or anyone else can uh, if it happens to be a state case, refrain from using the word state. I wouldn't say there's an implication in writing an opinion that it doesn't mean federal as well. At least I can't find that written in the opinion anywhere. Fair enough, Your Honor. Then, then with respect to the second part of my answer to your question, Justice Souter, that it cannot be both final for 1257 purposes and pending, and I believe it's... Well, why isn't your sister's answer to that uh, adequate? It is the state judgment that is final. Uh, but action on the petition is not yet final until it has gone through the, the, the period allowed for final review by this Court. I, I, would, I would respectfully disagree with that, with that non-distinction, if you will, Your Honor, in, in the sense that... that, that well, the she's distinguishing between uh, a state judgment uh, and an application upon which further, uh, further proceedings uh, can be had. Why is that a non-distinction? Because I, I, would, I would disagree with the notion that further proceedings could be had on that application. The basis for this court certiorari jurisdiction is that it is subject to no further review or correction in any state. Let's, let's, as, let's assume that, uh, that the, the petition for cert is granted and this court grants relief. Uh, the relief, as I understand it, is going to consist of, of uh, a, a remand to the state court saying, you did something wrong on this application before. Go back and do it over again and do it right. It's the, it is the state application which is going to be the subject of it, and it, therefore it is the state application that necessarily is the subject of the cert petition. I would say, Your Honor, that the state application may be the subject matter. It is it, what you are looking at from a subject matter standpoint. But what the Court is ruling on is the petition for certiorari, which is a federal court. A petition for certiorari to review action taken on a state petition, just as at the state level, whatever may be the, 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 the nomenclature for filing an appeal from the state trial court to the state uh, appellate court, 
is an application which relates entirely to uh, the original application for relief that was filed in, in, in the State Trial Court. The, it seems to me the, the, the two situations are exactly parallel. And I would, would respectfully disagree, Your Honor, because I, I don't see how it can be final for 1257 purposes and still pending for purposes of, of this statute. But so is it the, ap- the application that is not subject to review? We review the state court judgment, with, uh, not the, applic- the state application, correct? In this case, Your Honor, the, the application is the state court. I mean, the judgment is, is what is being reviewed, and it is a final judgment in the application. The Florida Supreme Court in this case has no power at all, once they have issued the mandate, to, to go back and, and modify, to correct. If six months later the Florida Supreme Court decided, you know, we made a mistake in that application, they don't have the power, sua sponte, to, to correct it. It is final. It is over. The state's process has been completed. Why is this oh, But they'd have triggered. the power to correct it if we told them to. In that circumstance, yes, Your Honor, certainly they would. In, in, in the circumstance, in the very unusual circumstance, where this court were to accept certiorari and then, subsequent to the acceptance of certiorari, then then reverse the, the, the and when it got back in the state supreme court, they would still be working on the application that had been pending until the end of the proceedings down there, and then suddenly came back to life after we sent it back. Yes, Your Honor, but, but that is, again, the extraordinary circumstance, and that, I think, points out the, 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 the one of the flaws in Petitioner's uh, argument, and that is that, that that's making the exception the rule, that, that it, clearly Congress did not intend to add what I believe Chief Justice Roberts alluded to uh, uh, earlier, uh, an extra three months, an extra six months, an extra Well, that's what I think he's saying. Uh, when, when, when you have ambiguous language, a sensible rule is not a rule that has to has a has to have a lot of exceptions to make sense. Surely that's a sound principle, isn't it? Yes, Your Honor. And, and, I, don't, and I don't think that this would be a lot of exceptions. I think this would be the, the only exception would be to the rule that we're advocating would be in the unusual circumstance, the one in 5,000 cases, the one in 1,000 cases, the, the exceptional case where this Court actually grants certiorari. Those cases are exceptional in and of themselves. Those are most likely where people are going to get mixed up. I mean, I, I, I'm not following. I, I, I think I think this argument about the word is metaphysical. Yeah, I, you know, and I can make wonderful arguments. I suspect, and you've made wonderful arguments on both sides of this. I just can't get a clear answer. So, if if I were right about that, and it is no clear answer from the language, then the thing I'd like to go back to Justice Stevens' question because. It seems to me that that puts my greatest concern. My greatest concerns are practical. If we do, if we take your position, we have words right next to each other, near each other, in the same statutory provision, meaning different things. And I've learned, out of my own experience, perhaps judges and lawyers are not always geniuses, and they get mixed up. And they'll get mixed up all the time. And uh, when they get mixed up, uh, uh, people will lose rights that they have. The second concern is Justice Stevens, which is uh, uh, what happens in the case. And those are the ones where intuitively is going to cause the problem, because on a rare occasion, the state or the prisoner has a very good Supreme Court case. And that's going to be the case where he forgets to file in the federal court, because he thinks this thing isn't over. And lo and behold, the court grants it. And now what happens? On your interpretation, I just see a mess. And on the other interpretation, it seems to work out fine. So, so those, I would say, are the two practical
practical problems. And anything you would like to say about that, I'd like to listen to. Thank you, Justice Breyer. And, and I would respectfully answer your question, I, I think, in three ways. First, drawing a distinction between when the state petitions for certiorari and when the habeas petitioner petitions for certiorari. Under, under both circumstances, equitable principles would apply, but they would apply in, in, in I think, different ways. But in, in either circumstance, the ability of the petitioner to subsequently seek habeas review would be protected. And, and so what we're advocating is not making those exceptional cases the rule. In the case where the state petitions for certiorari, there is an inability. There is no way to even file a protective habeas because there's nothing to file. You've won. The, the habeas petitioner has won in the court below. There is no cause of action. There isn't a basis upon which to file a federal habeas claim. So even a protective one would be, it wouldn't be premature. It would be effectively non-existent. So from an equitable standpoint, the extraordinary circumstance, which, which the, the, the courts have recognized, the circuits have recognized that the test for equitable circumstances, the extraordinary circumstance would be this court accepting certiorari. And then the, the exercise of diligence on the part of the petitioner, well, the petitioner did everything he or she could under that circumstance because there would be no way for that petitioner to file for federal habeas review because there would be no basis for it. Could I ask, does, does, does it seem very strange to me. I can understand the uh, protective filings when, when, when you've lost but it seems to me a very strange protective filing when you've won in state court and the government has taken uh, um, certiorari. Can you you file in in federal district court? Uh, What what do you say? What what are you complaining about? Exactly my point, Your Honor. You cannot. No, it's it's their point. I don't see how it's your point. How, How can you cover yourself? I mean, if we come out your way... There, there, there isn't a need to cover yourself, Your Honor, because you've won in state court. Well, well there, there isn't a need provided yeah, you're, this you're, equitable tone. You're worried about being reversed by the Supreme Court. In the one in 1,000 or one in 5,000 cases, equitable principles would then apply. I mean, we're, uh, we're dealing with a distinction, and perhaps I'm not being clear, between statutory tolling, what the statute actually provides for, and equitable tolling, equitable principles that have been applied. Well, but you're, you're asking us to uh, say that the Congress has written a statute uh, which doesn't take account that the state might sometimes file a petition for certiorari that would be granted. And you say, oh, that's so rare, that it's so extraordinary. It happens. Would, would you advise part of the a system. client that way? Would you advise a client that way? Uh, well, yes, you know, you've, uh, you've, uh, you've won here, and uh, the state's taking um, a certiorari to the Supreme Court. Uh, don't worry about making a protective filing in the district court because, you know, if, if, if by chance the Supreme Court reverses, equitable tolling will apply. You know, you roll the dice with equity. I, I don't think there would be — I think it would be ill-advised to, to direct a petitioner to file in federal court under those circumstances because there would be nothing to file. What would be the complaint? I agree. Absolutely nothing to file. And so — and irony, so, The irony of your position is it has its harshest consequences in those rare cases where there's a real argument about whether there was a denial of constitutional rights. And I wouldn't — I would submit, Your Honor, and respectfully disagree that, that, that it, it has its harshest consequences because that's where the equitable tolling principles would, in fact, apply. There, there wouldn't be this — Why this do you denial. need equitable tolling? Why can't you use — why isn't it most sensible to use the model for when — for the time clock on direct appeal? Say there has been a conviction affirmed by the highest court of the state — 
when does the time, when does that judgment, it's a final judgment if you seek cert, right? But the, t- the time clock, the one year, doesn't begin to run till after the, six, the 90 days has elapsed. Isn't that right? Yes, Your Honor. So why shouldn't it be the same way for collateral review as it is for direct review? Direct review, everyone agrees that you get the state final judgment, but then you have 90 days, and nothing starts till that 90 days is up, or if cert is granted, until the cert process is done. Why shouldn't it be just the same for collateral review? I would say it's different, Your Honor, respectfully, for two reasons. One, because this Court has said that direct review is different in in numerous cases. And two, because the statute makes that distinction. Congress in D1A utilized that very specific language that that included the the certiorari period, and in D2 did not use that language. And it is the absence of that language that indicates that tolling is only to apply while a petitioner is exhausting relief. Well, that means means if if a — Petitioner who has had his state application for collateral relief denied wants to petition this court but doesn't want to lose out on the possibility of seeking federal habeas. That prisoner has to do two things at the same time. One, prepare a petition for cert, and the other is complete. prepare a complaint to file in a federal district court. That's a a lot to uh, put on a person, particularly one who isn't represented. Well, Your Honor, I would say that in, in many circumstances that would be the case, but not always the case. It depends on how much time is left on the, the federal statute of limitations, how much time is remaining, how long did it take to get through the state post-conviction process, how timely was the filing in the state post-conviction process, and how much time is remaining, assuming for, for, for what was yeah, There was 31 days, right? Then they would need to file. Yes, Your Honor, they, they would to need to file a federal court complaint and a cert petition within the 31 days. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor, because the, the, the amount of time that, that would elapse before this Court were to rule on the cert petition would, would consume that 31 days. And, and I don't think that's inconsistent with what Congress intended here, because what Congress intended by this provision was to provide petitioner — well, what this Court said in, in Duncan — what this Court has recognized is that the scheme that has been put together here by Congress is one which encourages petitioners first to file and exhaust their state remedies, recognizing and, and giving deference to the principles of comity, and then second, to file once they're done with their state process, once they've completed the state process and exhausted their state remedies, to file their federal habeas, and in the words of this Court and Duncan, as soon as possible. And the anomaly that, that would be created by petitioner's construction would be it would be the only time under all of Ed where, where a petitioner could file in federal district court but isn't required to file. And so I would submit to this Court that, that it cannot be both exhausted and pending at the same time. It would not fit within the scheme that, that this Court has already determined the structure of, of D2 is, is designed to accomplish. The, the principle is that, that 
you are to, as, as a, a habeas petitioner, go quickly to state court. And we're going to give state courts the first opportunity at these federal constitutional questions. And yes, Justice Stevens, it may take some time. It may take several years in federal, in state court before they accomplish that purpose. But, but that's the state's issue because it's the state's judgment and the state is taking its time. And, and it shouldn't be, and this is what Congress recognized, I, I think, in D2, is that, 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 the petitioner should not be penalized for that time. That's why is we poll. Is it clear that, that that he can go to go to district? I mean, I'm not familiar with how these things work. Is it possible that that when there is an appeal or certiorari pending here, there can be proceeding in district court a, a habeas action on the same on the same matter that we're considering on certiorari? Yes, Your Honor, I believe there can. I, I see there's, there's, in fact. Do courts do that? I mean, they're, they're, be considering uh, the same, the same issues we are, I suppose? Well, I don't know that they would be considering the exact same issues, Your Honor. And there are many things that can be done. Petitioner you're sure, you're sure that happens, that while cert is pending here, there's a habeas proceeding uh, ongoing in district court? Well, I certainly hope in the 10 of the 11 circuits that have agreed with, with this Florida's position here that that is happening, because if not, then they're at risk, depending on Wouldn't the Wouldn't a district decide. judge who knows that there's a cert petition pending just says, well, well, I'll wait. This, this petition will be held pending the Supreme Court's disposition of cert. I would respectfully say to Your Honor that it's not an automatic stay. I mean, perhaps there would be a stay at some point, but there are things that can be accomplished in federal court before the undertaking of the, of the review. There's the rule for screening process in habeas. There's the, the initial review by the district court to, to see if the filing itself is, meets the procedural requirements. There is the asking for an answer by the state. There is discovery that can take place. All of this can take place while the cert petition is pending and before the federal district court undertakes any review of the merits. Now, if there gets to be this juxtaposition, where it looks like there, there's going to be a conflict between the federal district court's review of the substantive merits, and that is going to conflict with this court's certiorari review, well, then I think a stay would be implemented. Well, but, I'll, I'll accept your view as being the person more experienced. I'm, I'm rather surprised that district courts would go through all of these uh, preliminary steps when the case is uncertain. They may not have to. Uh, well, I'm they not may not sure have if, if I would tell district courts that what they ought to do is a wise expenditure of resources. I'll, I'll think about that. Well, well, I mean, it sort of depends on how often cert's going to be granted, doesn't it? If you're a district court and, it, and you have hundreds of these uh, habeas petitions being filed, you can either hold off on all of them whenever a cert petition is filed, if one in 1,000 or whatever the number is, because they might be granted. I, I think you probably take your chances depending on the petition. If it looks serious and there's a petition pending, you don't have to proceed. If it's frivolous, perhaps you can proceed. I think that's exactly right, Your Honor. I think that's, that, that's really the point, and, and, and you obviously articulated better than I did in my, my previous uh, uh, answer, but, but that's exactly right. That, that but isn't it true that the, the, the real problems with the capital cases, the state's interest in, in, in getting things moving is the strongest in the capital cases, I think. Absolutely, Your Honor. Because in the, in the non-capital cases, there's an interest in promptness, but the longer the guy stays in jail is not going to prejudice the state. But you do want to get your, your death cases terminated as soon as you can. And what we're really talking about, as I understand it, is whether in most death cases we'll add on a period of six, eight, nine months to the total period. And in most of those death cases, which is a limited number, I don't know, you have a couple hundred people, I suppose, on death row, those cases, it's going to be seven, eight, nine years anyway. 
Well, it may be that long. It may be a shorter period. But, but I think what we need to look at is, is not what we would think would be the preferred time frame, but what Congress said was the preferred time frame. And Congress is saying that it's one year. And, and the only time it's told is when the petitioner is doing what the petitioner should be doing to exhaust state remedies. And that's, again, what this Court said in Duncan about describing this entire well, that, That's structure. if you're formally right, the metaphysical question. But if you're not, I'm now thinking you just gave a response to the Chief Justice, said, well, really the, uh, the federal district judge, when he gets these things, just has to look at them, and then he figures out whether he's going to stay it, whether he's going to proceed on some issues, uh, or whether he's uh, going to do something else. And that's what you thought was fairly easy. You have the experience there. And I just wonder how easy it is. I mean, why, why wouldn't it be easy? Because I guess before doing anything, the judge has to know what this thing is about. And that's where it seems to me to take the time of a district judge. They have many, many petitions. Uh, sometimes they're well organized, sometimes not. He sends them to a magistrate, possibly. The magistrate has a lot to do. And the time consumed is the time finding out what is this case about. Is that fair? characterization or not? I, How I, think easy is it? I, I think it's partly fair, Your Honor. What I would say is the time, certain time is consumed just determining whether or not under the Rule 4 screening process, whether or not the petition meets the formal requirements, whether they've, they've articulated the claim in the correct way, and then whether it's worthy of, of a state response, if there's discovery that needs to be had. I mean, all of these things can be taking place, and in the one in 1,000 or perhaps more than that, and I don't pretend to have the exact number or the statistics, but in the very, very unusual circumstance where CERT is actually granted, I think then a stay could be put in place. And, and I don't think it's fair to say, respectfully, that Congress intended to forestall this entire process while this Court undertakes certiorari review. Mr. Kais, if there's the two applications, your answer to the petitioners, you have to file in the Federal Court within that 31 days. If a prisoner says, I can't manage a cert petition, and a federal habeas corpus, it's hard enough for me to get any assistance. So I have to pick one or the other. Isn't the, the reading of an ambiguous statute that you're proposing going to be an incentive or a disincentive to filing both, which the prisoner has a right to do? He's going to have to pick one or the other if he's in this time bind. Well, respectfully, Your Honor, I, and, and I know that that is the petitioner's argument, and, and I see that you, you have given me that question, but I, I don't know that it is that much of a choice. I mean, I think that they, they can file, they can file both in both, cir in, under those circumstances, and, and depending on the particular circumstances, and this is back to the equitable tolling principles, for statutory tolling purposes, I think the answer is they must file both or they forfeit the right to one or the other. If they choose not to file for cert, then they voluntarily, if they pass the 90 days, forfeit that right. And if they don't file within the statutory period, then they have, under EDPA, missed the statute of limitations deadline. But I would I submit to you that it is possible to do both. And in circumstances where there is some impediment to them doing just that, if they exercise diligence, if they are doing everything they possibly can and it is not possible 
to file both at the same time. Well, then I think under the facts of, of, of the proper scenario that equitable principles might apply. But, but again, to say that Congress built into the system this automatic time period that's going to be tacked on to a very short one-year statute of limitations, a statute of limitations that is designed to really move things through the system rapidly, uh, is, is uh, respectfully, I don't think, the correct interpretation of, of, of the language. And I don't think it's it is consistent with what this Court said in Duncan or with respect to Justice Breyer, what this Court said in Kerry. Let, let me um, be clear on your answer to uh, Justice Stevens' earlier question. Where there is a reversal of the state judgment by, by this Court and the case is remanded to the state, you don't argue that what occurs then is equitable tolling, but you say that the case is again pending once it goes back to the state. Is that right? I, I think once it's be back in the state system, then it would have to be considered pending because the statute contemplates that, that while it's part of the state process, it would be pending. The Court has no further questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Keis. Uh, Ms. Bonner, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, sir. I've heard the State over these many years say that a simple exception will help the defendant, and don't worry, we will not proceed. We'll ask for — don't worry, we won't object. And a kind of what we're getting here is we won't be objecting to a stay if there is a stay requested. However, they objected to the stay here that the United States District Court entered in an exercise of honesty. He said, I'm going to wait for the Supreme Court to decide what happens in our twos, whether they accept cert or not. And they vigorously objected and utilized a good little bit of time litigating it on an interlocutory-type appeal. Uh, One of the practical problems is if this is — case is in both courts, this one in the United States District Court, where is the record? Is It's just the most practical of things. And also, where is the lawyer? Who is the lawyer? Records don't have to be, or typically are not filed with the petition for cert. So the record would be back in the lower court. Okay. So that solves that? <laughs> the, uh <laughs> Just to be clear, it, it is your position that to get you think everyone's entitled to the additional 90 days, whether they file or not? Yes, I do. To get the additional time for an opposition that it would be considered here, you have to file the petition for cert. In other words, if you don't file after the 90th day, it's no longer pending. Absolutely. Okay. So then why wouldn't the result of your position be that every person who's denied state post-conviction relief is going to file a cert petition to get the additional time? Why is my position that they wouldn't that lead to that result? Congress was concerned that people were stringing out Uh the the time before they seek habeas. One way to string it out under your reading, Uh but not under the state's reading, would be to file a petition for cert. Well, Congress couldn't have been too concerned about that 90 days because it certainly permitted the trigger to have the 90 days included within it. And this court has allowed the 90 days. Sorry, what's the the trigger? A, A. 2241. Yes, when they wanted to include the 90 days, they said the expiration of the time for seeking review. They did not say that in D2. They did not say that, but they said while the application is pending. And the state did not address for this court what is pending here if it's not that application from state court. Does your argument also say, I guess you could also say that except uh, in capital cases, uh, the defendant will not have an incentive to to delay. He wants to get out. Of right? course. Of course. 
And, uh, you know, frankly, I think all of the defendants on well, death no, row are — If the defendant had no incentive to delay, why did Congress think it necessary to impose the statute of limitations? They did that because they thought people were stringing out there, uh, and, and they were applying for federal habeas after too long of a delay. Well, strangely enough, in this case, uh, I was looking at statistics as to the average length of time that a case was pending before, between conviction and the filing of the 2254, and Mr. Lawrence's petition was filed within days of what the average was before the AEDPA. Uh, That comes up in a statistical analysis, I believe, by the Department of Justice cited to Doesn't the title of the statute indicate the category of cases Congress is primarily interested in? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, when they joined together anti-terrorism and effective. Just the word effective was was plenty to convey to us what they actually mean. Uh, The other big problem that's not been addressed is these people, in a practical sense, do not have the same lawyer for both proceedings. Many people who were more than willing to practice in state court are not willing to practice in federal court. It's a more formalized, um, rigorous endeavor. And in this case, what happened was Mr. Lawrence had a lawyer who practiced in the state and obviously must have prepared for him that initial uh, placeholder, if you want to call it, 2254, because it's typewritten. They cite to a Westlaw site. I don't think I don't think there's any way that anyone could contemplate that that would be Mr. Lawrence's doing in his own right. Um, also, whether it's 90 days or six months, as Your Honor has said, it's always in the control of this court. Once the 90 days, this is not a frolic of, of unnumbered years. When someone files a petition, he either files it by the time 90 days is over or he's out of court, or he files it, and this court is quickly reviewing it after some input from the other side. I Thank appreciate you, it. Thank the you. case is submitted.